Welcome back to Laravel Podcast Season 3, where I mispronounce everybody's names. Today I'm talking to Abed Halawi. I think that's right. He did lots of great packages and stuff. You'll learn more soon. Okay, bye. All right, welcome back to another episode of Laravel Podcast Season 3, where I mispronounce people's names. I actually got it wrong right before the intro, but then he corrected me. So it's... uh. It's the so the syllable. It's the emphasis on the wrong syllable. So I'm talking to Abed Halawi, um, and I'm going to let him introduce himself, where he's from. And I, I tell you guys all this every single time when I do this, but I'd like to switch it up between people that you have heard of before. You know, you know an Adam, and you know a Taylor, and you know whatever, and people who within certain communities they're well known. They made an amazing package. They're a strong community leader or something, but the whole rest of the world might not know about them. So. You know, this is the, the guy I'm talking to today uh, is a little bit more in that second one. So I want him to tell us a real quick bit about, so who are you, where do you live, where do you work, and what are a few things that you're known for, you know, in your world? All right. So uh, you got my name almost right this time? Almost. I'll take it. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> so it's Abed Halawi in our language. In English, usually it's Abed Halawi. So the emphasis is on the middle of the Wait, last so, name. Wait, so when you say it's the emphasis is on the last syllable of your last name, Halawi. Not halal. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I'm getting there. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Uh, so I live in Beirut. I was born here and always been here. And I currently work here as well at a company called VineLab. Uh, what we do is focus on the influencer marketing, uh, building a SaaS platform to, to uh, provide influencer marketing to brands. Uh, basically, uh, our website says it all. So, if you'd like to know more about that, go to vinelab.com and that will tell you everything about that. Um, so, so, I'm here because uh, mainly about the Lucid architecture, which was first introduced in Laracon EU. The Lucid architecture is about um, a collection of experiences that we've went through. Um, and we thought that certain ways would improve the way we work together as a team and we thought that well actually this is something very interesting and could help others solve their problems as well the same problems that we've had and solved our way so maybe our way could help others solve theirs as well um, that's one thing and the other thing is Neo Eloquent which is the package for Eloquent and Neo4j Neo4j is the graph database and we use that library uh, as the core storage library in our products uh, with which we uh, bridge between Laravel projects and graph databases. Um, so there's a couple things you said there. So if anybody was at Laracon EU, you would have seen um, Abed give his talk, uh, was it two years ago, 2017? Or that was one year ago, yes. I guess. Math is hard. Um, but I'll also make yeah. sure I put a link to that in the show notes. Um, so he mentioned that. And uh, then also he mentioned he makes he maintains and created a package called NeoEloquent, which is a kind of an eloquent style wrapper on tops of Neo4j. And if you ever heard anybody talk about graph databases, it's one of those things where, oh my gosh, graph databases are the, the new hotness. But I think a lot of people don't actually have a lot of experience working with them. So real quick before we get into your backstory, I'd love for you to give me a, a tiny little pitch in each of those. And I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase elevator pitch but it basically means imagine you have 30 seconds on an elevator ride to convince a potential user or founder or, or um, uh, funder or something like that of why your thing's great can you give me the elevator pitch the 30 second pitch on lucid architecture why is it different what does it help you with and then i want to get the same one for uh, for neo4j and graph databases all right no pressure huh none at all <laughs> so <laughs> um okay so lucid um, it's about eliminating legacy projects completely. You would never have to move to a project that you've worked on three years ago and say, where does this go? Where is this piece of code that I'm looking for? Where do I find this happening? Or where, how is this feature implemented? What's the structure of the code? All of these are eliminated with the Lucid architecture, which basically takes over from where MVC uh, leaves off. Um, is there what's the one biggest difference with how Lucid Architecture organizes its code relative to your normal MVC project? It complements MVC projects. 
So it's not a replacement to MVC, but basically with MVC, um, in the controller, you almost have everything. This is where things get a little uh, confusing in controllers. I mean, if you have a project A and you have a project B, to each by uh, a different separate team, in the controller, if you go there, you will find things written differently. And this is where Lucid comes in. What Lucid says that each controller method only has one line only. This line is to serve a specific feature. A feature specifically is a class by itself. And within that feature, you would define the sequence of steps that accomplishes this feature, and we call them in Lucid jobs. So each step in the feature is a job, and each job does only one thing and is responsible for performing one thing only. You can share jobs between different features, but each job can do only one thing, and each feature serves uh, one uh, user story from the controller. That way you can achieve what we always dream about achieving with MVC, which is the thinnest controllers we can ever reach. Mm-hmm. Um, is it similar to invocable controllers, or do your controllers have multiple methods, but each of those methods only have one line? Um, you can say it's close to what a command bus pattern is. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, can, you can think of your controller as the command bus, and you're just executing commands. Got the it. commands take different forms, right? It could be a feature or it could be a job. So the same form repeats itself. Got it. Okay. And if anybody wants to learn more, um, there's it's all written up in the... Well, it's both written up in the GitHub, which I'll link, but it's also in your Laracon EU talk, which is on YouTube, and I'll link that one as well. Um, but since this is not an architecture podcast at the moment, it's a person podcast, let's move on real quick to talk about um, NeoEloquent. So NeoEloquent, I understand, gives an eloquent style interface to Neo4j. Let's if you had to give the elevator pitch again, <laughs> this time, can you give me a quick elevator pitch for graph databases and what makes them a little bit different from traditional relation, relational databases? Sure. So with the graph databases, the way we store the data and visualize the data and manipulate the data is the same way we think about the data. So the first thing we do when we start a new project or data modeling for a project, what we do is draw circles and connections between these circles, which later on get tra- gets translated and transformed into tables and foreign keys, etc. But with uh, graph databases, the way you draw the first data model with your hand on a board is the way it is stored right away. Mm-hmm. And you can manipulate that. Okay. And you, c- you can also implement traversal and all the graph algorithms that we study about throughout our uh, computer science journey. So you can apply all of these to the data that is stored. And if, if anybody like me does not have a, a computer science background, when we're talking graphs, the, the easiest way to kind of think about that is when, when people talk about a social graph, to think about everything being based on relationships on relationships on relationships. So Exactly. And a relationship is, a, is what we call the first-class citizen in the database. Right. Whereas with relational databases, it's a little more second-class, essentially. Exactly. Foreign keys and everything. Okay, cool. Well, I'd love to talk more about those things, but today ain't the day for that. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to know a little bit about you. So before we go into your backstory, um, I'd like to know, first of all, when you meet somebody at the supermarket and they ask you what you do, what do you tell them? Um, these days, I find it very easy to talk about these things from how it used to be when we first started, because today, especially with um, today's generation, it's th- we take technology for granted right mm-hmm. we we're they're born and growing up in the world where cloud is the norm right right so uh, if i were to explain this i would uh, maybe go to uh, to an example by saying um, okay i'm a robot and you tell me what i do what to do uh, and i will do everything you tell me so this is how it first starts. So right. when they tell me to do this and do that, I would do them. And then I would say, well, this is exactly what I do with machines. So I would give instructions to machines so that they run them when I'm not there. So they okay. keep doing them. <laughs> so what, what is your actual role? Are you uh, a developer? Are you a tech lead? What's your, your official title? My official title is tech lead. Okay. But we are a startup. Okay. <laughs> this is a little bit of everything. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can so, call yourself uh, <laughs> CTO if you wanted, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, the thing is, we with startups, mostly we get the opportunity to wear different hats, mm-hmm. which is interesting so that we can get 
horizontal and vertical expertise. Yeah. So uh, by horizontal, I mean different technologies, different areas of technology, say front-end, back-end, DevOps, and everything related to that. And in each area, we get to grow vertically where we improve ourselves and our skills in each of these areas. This is the most interesting about uh, being in a startup. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned having a computer science degree. So I want to hear a little bit a little bit later about the, the path you took from computer science degree up, up to being a part of a startup. Real quick, did, were you one of the founders of the startup or did you join it after it started? I'm not the founder, but I'm the first employee. All right, so, no, so. you're employee number one. So we'll talk yep. a little bit about later about your journey from you know graduating with a computer science degree to being employee number one of a startup. But real quick, when did you first get into computers? Um, I was very young, basically um, around... Mm, I was nine years old, maybe ten years old, uh, mm-hmm. and our neighbor had a computer, and I used to go there just to watch them play. They did oh, not cool. allow me to play. Right. My brother used to play instead. But later on, we, I had my own computer at home, but with no internet, so Encyclopedia was our way to go to search yep. for information mm-hmm. back then. And mostly gaming. So we were kids. I enjoyed gaming mostly. Uh, this what is, kind of games This was my introduction to gaming. Mostly uh, fight games, okay. first-person shooter. Yeah. Yeah, Delta Force and, you know, these yeah, yeah, games. For sure. And also strategy. Yeah. Uh, like Edge of Empires, uh, Red Alert, you, you know, the early mm-hmm. kinds Man, of, the early of versions games. of those. Um, yeah. Uh, but then later, but, um, my the reason why I joined or, or took the computer science uh, path was a bit of a, a coincidence. Okay. Kind of. Because at first I was into... Uh, medicine Mm -hmm. so I wanted to be a doctor at first and I went to the university where I started studying that for a year Mm -hmm. but after half of that year passed I did not find myself there yeah I felt that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing and I the thing is I passed all my exams and passed everything and I was doing good sure Um, but then later on um, I couldn't feel it mm-hmm. you know it's it's just that thing you get at a later stage of doing a thing for a while yep. and then you say um, I don't I don't feel like doing this my entire life yeah um, mainly because I was interested in um, neurology and everything related to the human brain and human mind and and has kind of a minor to uh, psychology mm-hmm. that's a side interest um, but at some point, um, I decided to shift majors, and I was looking at what universities are in the area that are close by, and so a software engineering um, class by mistake, basically <laughs> because I was looking at at a different area of, uh-huh. of courses, and there was software engineering, and I was like, "What? What is software engineering?" I didn't know. Uh, what that was so I went in and I saw a lot of things that had to do with computers and I and I thought well that would tell me how these games have always worked Um, yeah and uh, what's interesting is that uh, I'm gonna jump a little forward to say that um, with computer science I found um, found myself finding out about uh, how humans operate Mm -hmm. and psychology specifically Mm -hmm. more than uh, I think I could have with medicine because uh, the amount of people who are using technology today can tell you a lot about how it has um, changed the the way we Mm -hmm. live Mm -hmm. it's everywhere and it has changed almost every industry so when you're in technology it's not only about the code that we write it's not only about having programs that are written just for the machine to work Mm -hmm. but it's more about satisfying the human need Mm -hmm. this is the the essence of these things Mm. Um, and one thing that um, I had recently uh, a small chat about that has to do with how designers can get to know more about technology and how technologists or developers get to know more about design and maybe do them th- it's themselves. Um, and 
what I, the way I like to think about it is that designers don't need to know technology, te technology or development, and developers don't really need to know design and do them, uh, do it themselves. But it's the bridge between them lies in a different area. It's philosophy, it's psychology, it's it's the bridge between those two. So mm. if though if these two areas can learn more about these, I think this will close a huge gap between these two areas. You're reminding me a lot of my favorite conference talk I've ever given, which was um, about empathy. And I made a lot of the similar pitches from a little bit different angle that you're talking about, but that understanding mm -hmm. people and satisfying people is the, the best way to be a good programmer is not to know the code better than everybody else. It's to know the end user better than anybody else and, and to empathize both with end users and also the other developers on your team and the designers and everything like that. So I, I love where you're going there. And I, I, I moved from working in a nonprofit um, where my job was about people and understanding people and helping people grow to running a company. And there's a lot more similarity than I would have expected between the two because I'm still working with people and helping people grow and helping people do a good job. You know, so I'm, I couldn't agree with you more about that. And I love hearing you say that. Um, exactly. So, so you... You, I love. You're not the first person to say this. I, 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 one of my most recent interviews, I can't remember exactly who it was, said that same thing. Of, you know what? I wanted to figure out how the games work, and so that's really fascinating to me. So, so you got in. Did you find yourself in there saying, "Oh, this is amazing. I love this. This is so great," or did you get in there and did you have a moment of being uh, kind of dissatisfied, where you, you know, you said, "Oh, I thought it was going to be fun and games all the time, and all I'm learning is math." What was your actual experience in those computer science classes? Um, at first, I didn't did not know what to expect. I did not know what computer science was all about, right? Um, so, with that in mind, um, and I started learning by myself on the side, mm -hmm. besides the what, what I was being taught at at the university. Um, I was very interested in the field. I did not expect to learn everything on the first day, right? So. Uh, with that expectation in mind, I started finding out that I'm good at this. I'm, nice. It's all about recognizing patterns, yeah. right? I, I really did not care about where I'm putting most of my effort because I know that everything that is being taught and channeled to us as students is to orient us uh, towards having a certain mindset so that at some point in the future, we know where to use uh, these uh, techniques and methodologies. Uh, it was a bit um, later in my studies, maybe it was the second year of university, that I've discovered that university will not teach you everything. Right? It was, right. Maybe it was <laughs> a little late for that, but uh, um, I knew then that uh, this is not the place that will teach you everything, but what they will do is teach you how to think about problem solving, how to think about the, uh, uh, computer science and how uh, programming works. It's just the basics and fundamentals. You don't really need to learn every computer language and yeah. every um, technology out there from university. They just put you on the path and it's all up to you um, in, in terms of where to go and how to take this further. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Um, so you did that. W were you having to choose to specialize in a particular type of programming and everything like that? Or did you just, you got a degree in software engineering or computer science and then you were out in the workplace and had to find something like where, what was the next big decision you had to make after you'd made the decision to go into computer science? Um, it was the second year also where I joined a company where I used to work as a support agent. Uh, you know, the regular things, tickets, answering tickets, forum, forums, and uh, answering the phone and, doing, and helping people get um, their job done on the, on the platform. Mm -hmm. um, and at some point in there, as I was studying um, and working a full-time job, uh, the, the technical department had a certain problem they were trying to solve. And I was overhearing. I did not. Mm -hmm. I wasn't very <laughs> involved in their works, but uh, as I was overhearing, and it was in the kitchen where I spent most of my time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, uh, 
I overheard this this problem they were having that had to do with data storage and transferring data from a place to another. I don't really remember the the, the, the details of that problem, but I remember um, throwing out a word that helped them solve it. And then they were interested. Uh, so I was working on this Java project for the university and one of the, the head of the developers came into the room and saw me coding uh, at work, which I was not supposed to do. So he asked me, why are you coding? This is not your job here. And I said, well, I enjoy this. I like to do this when I don't have anything else to do. So it was then when he asked for me to join the development team and start learning web development. So it was kind of um, passive, the way I started learning about web development and the web technologies. Uh, but at the same time, um, I was enjoying doing it. Yeah. I enjoyed programming on my free time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and after moving there, um, the kind of choice I had to make was which area to fill. Because they had an area that had to do with software programming, uh, installed software programming, uh, and they had a web application programming, uh, which was a portal that involved all the areas of the, uh, the company. So this was the administration interface of everything that everyone does in the company. I was going through a revamp. Um, and I had the chance to join this team who was doing this revamp. And I did not know anything about web development. <laughs> so I started learning there. Uh -huh. <laughs> right? Um, it was very tough. That's, that's the least I can say. Because back then, uh, I don't remember... Um, there was much courses online to learn from. Mm -hmm. It was mostly either books or CDs that, um, I'm not proud to say this, but we had to get the cracked mm -hmm. version or the, yep. <laughs> the, the pirated versions of those so yep. that we can learn. Um, so th this was basically uh, my transition from being a support agent to starting to work in development. Yeah. Uh, from there on, it was a regular journey where I continued exploring this realm of technologies. So it started with front-end development, doing a little bit of JavaScript here and there. It was jQuery was booming yeah. at the time, uh, <laughs> uh, so I started learning that, and I was very interested in animations on web. So it, it was some kind of an interest between design and implementation mm -hmm. of things. I like to see things move on an interface. Yeah. And with jQuery, I had I, I had the chance to do it with a very easy instruction. So that was the catch for me to say, well, I'm glad I chose this major. I'm glad that I'm here today. And that's definitely how I would like to spend my time. Nice. Mo yeah. That's very cool. So you you were still in school when you were doing all this stuff? Wow. Yes. Okay. Basically, uh, I, <laughs> I graduated. Sleep? Well, this uh, <laughs> I don't remember doing that. No. <laughs> Sorry, what were you saying um, about graduating? <laughs> yeah, so um, I graduated. Basically, computer science to study it here, it takes three years, okay. maybe four uh, with the regular courses. But it took me five plus because I was working full-time, so yeah. I uh, started <laughs> understanding that mm -hmm. work will teach me much more about yeah. practicality mm -hmm. than the university will. But still, I was very interested in the topics that were given at the university that had to do mostly with organizing work, everything that's related to uh, diagrams, planning, software engineering, and how um, to organize the work. Uh, there was many uh, non-tech courses that I was interested in as well that has to do with management too. Um, so I was learning a bit of uh, both uh, spe uh, the both uh, types of programming. So it was high level where I learned the web stuff and it was low level where I, where I learned the theories and everything that had to do with how a computer works and, and the, uh, you know, behind the curtains. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it was very interesting. And then I graduated after five years with three years experience full-time, yeah. which was, <laughs> uh, at the time, was, wow, th th I was uh, very happy to have done that. Yeah. It was one of the best uh, choices I've ever made. Okay. And so what was the road from there to being employee number one of your current startup? 
Was there a lot? There are a lot of different jobs in between there, or no, not much actually. Okay. Um, there was one failed startup that um, I founded in uh, the university. So they had this program where they opened what they called the innovation center. Mm-hmm. It was uh, a room for people who would like to build their ideas in there. Mm-hmm. They bring some students together, and if one of these ideas make it uh, through certain uh, specified competitions that they do across universities here mm-hmm. um, you have to to make it for the at least three first three positions and if you did they would invest uh, not money but they would invest in uh, helping you okay. push this further cool. right which is what you need yeah. at the time right as a student that's all you need a place to apply the work and an idea to put all the code in place mm-hmm. um and that's the first thing um, after um, the first job. Then there was a job for a year where I also uh, did a lot of web programming. I learned a lot of Linux there uh, because I was handling also system administration. Okay. Um, and then after that, I was here where I, where I am today. Um, it was interesting because... Um, with w- when you're joining uh, a startup, there's merely any guarantee that this is going to work. Right. And there's there's merely an, uh, merely an idea based mm-hmm. on a s- certain gap in the market. Um, and I can easily say that f- this has been uh, almost six years. It will be six years in October. Um, and I can easily say that we've pivoted a lot throughout these six years, and it's mm-hmm. been the best experience I've ever had f- from personal and technical. It's, it wasn't cool. only technical because when I first started, I was the only developer mm-hmm. and uh, most of my time I was just coding. But then things started to grow and as a company, we started to scale. So uh, at the beginning, we were doing um, services. Mm-hmm. So with services, you get exposed to a variety of uh, types of projects. Mm-hmm. So there were uh, mobile projects, there were web projects, and there were uh, things in between as well. Um, so this variety created a lot of needs for uh, the team to grow, and as the team grew, uh, my role expanded as well. Mm-hmm. So I had to occupy a larger gap in in the team and cover. Um, not only technical and coding, but it was mostly organization uh, and management mm-hmm. to take over. And this was a real, um, I don't know, what's the biggest word than challenge? Yeah. But I would say more than a challenge. Yeah. Because as, as a developer, all you, need, all you would like to be doing and spending your time doing is coding, mm-hmm. right? But then if you code and not know where this code is going, mm-hmm. Uh, at some point, these, these things get lost. So we need to organize things. Uh, and what's interesting is that this led to creating the Lucid architecture because um, as much as there were chaos in the development process that we were implementing at the time, we had this uh, huge need to organize things, not only from personal and communicational perspective, but also in the code itself. We had so many projects running at the same time, uh, and every time we switched between a project and another, uh, it felt like going from a country to another. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it felt like you were looking at something that's red, and then you're looking at something that's yellow, and then that's right. white, and then that's black. That's that's uh, a huge difference between those. Uh, so this was the inception of Lucid, where it uh, tries and makes sure that all these projects are n- normalized. Mm-hmm. So that you, you felt some kind of chaos. You were switching contexts a lot, and the contexts were different enough that it felt too chaotic, and you had to relearn each one. So you created something that's, that applies more of a standardization across projects than what MVC provides. And you said, now when I enter a new project, and obviously it's much more complicated than this, but... I know that every single web request will be serviced by a single feature or job, basically. And you're trying to make it such that on every project, it uses the same architecture. Exactly. Have you, uh, have you had the opportunity to use it on a pretty significant diversity of projects, or is it still something pretty new for y'all? Uh, we've, we're currently using it 
So we're implementing microservices. Mm -hmm. um, and with microservices, each service we have is a Laravel installation of the Lucid architecture itself. Mm -hmm. And we currently have around 48 services running at the same time. So you can easily say that we've uh, um, implemented Lucid in 48 projects right. <laughs> so and are those far, and they're, they're in production. Those, are those 48 all serving the same primary um, product, is, which is the influencer-related stuff? Or is it a whole bunch of different products that are all kind of offered to influencers? Uh, these 48 services are in the same product. Okay. It's the SaaS platform that we're building. Uh, on the side, we have some side projects that we use internally that are also based on Lucid. Uh, I would count two or three that are currently uh, running and um, they are all in production and okay. live. I am going to ask... So we're pretty confident. Uh, yeah, I'm going to ask a few... Uh, no, no, you're good. It's a little bit of lag. Yeah. I'm going to ask a few questions about Lucid. I, I, I can tell you're confident. I can see it in your face and hear it in what you're saying. So um, since you're, since every single controller method, all it does is it just serves one of these features, a, a feature is then meant to specifically parse the request, which I assume it gets out of like the application container, and also return a uh, result. So is it safe to say that a feature, um, or maybe a job, let's say a feature for now, is the same as a controller method in terms of its scope, in that it takes a an HTTP request and returns an HTTP response? It is exactly that. Okay. So it, it's obviously more complicated, but the simplest way to think about it is when you're thinking about those 200 line long controller methods, pull that thing out and make it a class. That's the first step. Uh, One class. Yeah, so it's very interesting because um, I gave a talk at Laracon US that talked about, among other things, um, quite a few code patterns for how to uh, simplify your 200 line long controller methods. And I didn't talk about Lucid, um, but I talked about things you can extract so that those you know those those things in there um, are pulled out into individual classes and what I kind of recommended more at that point was well here's a way to simplify the response part you know using a custom HTTP response or something like that here's a way to simplify the input part by using custom HTTP requests or something like that here's a way to look at us uh, customize the, the the database queries using repositories or whatever else um, so I'm super interested to take a look at this and try it out are there any open source projects that are using lucid I'm not aware of any uh, an open source project as in a full uh, lucid project that is currently operating and is online okay. yeah like if somebody wanted to go see what it looked like to use an actual functioning application using lucid uh, there's definitely an example that is on the github repo uh, and there is work being put into having video tutorials that can teach lucid cool. in depth uh, but having a Lucid project online uh, as an open source means basically that uh, you're exposing the whole project. So um, that's interesting, though. Uh, I'd definitely like to implement something like that. Uh, at at Titan, we have a whole bunch of ideas that would never make any money, um, but we just like to provide them as a service, and so we open source their code. So if you one day say, you know what I'd really like? So I'd like a website that does X, Y, and Z for me, and you know only 500 people would use it, and those 500 people would never pay any money for it, or maybe they'd pay $10 a month for it, but it's not actually worth trying to, to do all the marketing. Uh, maybe that, that might be an opportunity for you guys to actually have a real functioning website that has real users, that has to service real user requests, and everything is completely transparent. Um, because I think that's one of the most interesting ways to have these conversations and to expose our internal ideas to kind of the world around us and and really kind of let them up to the light of criticism outside, outside of our own organization. You know, we have some ideas at Titan that sound good until they get exposed to the outside air. <laughs> uh, and I'm not saying that's going to happen with Lucid, but I, 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 that is something that's super, been super valuable for us. So. I know. I would love if that would happen. Cool. <laughs> Actually, that's a lovely idea. I would definitely invest into that. Cool. Well, if I ever have an idea, I'll throw in your way. But I, I would say that that'd be a good selling point for you guys on Lucid to be able to have something like that that people can really see. Um, all right. Totally. So this isn't the Lucid interview as much as I'm interested in these things. So um, tell me a little bit about your time working in a startup. You said when you got started there, you did client services. And so what I mean by that, I assume by that is you were a consultancy. People hired you to build products for them. Um, so I have a couple questions. The first question I want to ask is, what changes happened to your tech stack over the years? When did you come across Laravel? And what were what aspects of Laravel made you most interested in using Laravel when you decided to use it? 
I first started using Laravel, it was Laravel 3, version 3. That's been a um, while, man. And <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a long while. And what's interesting is that the project that we built back then was shut down a few months ago. So it was still running until today. Nice. That's, <laughs> that, great. that's what makes it, yeah, uh, makes it very interesting. And the thing that got me about uh, Laravel was, I can easily say it's the documentation mm -hmm. at the beginning. I mean, when you read the documentation, you would you literally understand how you would uh, how potential how much potential this framework has and how much you can open up um, and build on top of that. And yeah. it's easy to start with. So um, we started this project. It took us two or three months, and we were up with um, an administration interface for multiple websites that we had for different clients. And that was when we first started Laravel. Uh, the tech stack back then was Laravel, MySQL database, um, with a regular Apache web server. And later on, um, we had this project where it was uh, a publishing platform. This was uh, the first pivot in the business model. So mm. we started, uh, we stopped doing services and then we shifted into building our um, publishing platform. And with that, there was uh, also ideas about user-generated content and actions that users can take uh, on content published by celebrities. So from our um, ser services that we've done, we've built a lot of, we've built a huge network of celebrities that are A-class in our region. Hmm. And from there, we thought, let's build a platform and um, join them all together where they can have official news and posts um, that can also integrate with social media and have people uh, join that platform as well. Hmm. And this is where the first search for um, a database that can uh, really mimic what the social network would be mm -hmm. in data. Mm -hmm. And that was where we discovered Neo4j. And this is where we started building Neoalcon so that we can build that platform. And we did for a while. And then we figured, hmm, um, that's not really the gap in the business. Uh, we were just doing that so that we, because we thought it was um, the point of entry into the entertainment business. But then we also pivoted that into a SaaS, a platform mm -hmm. where um, we can gather data from social media because influencer marketing is booming these days, right? And uh, especially in the region, it came a little late than we predicted. Mm. So we knew this was coming uh, very soon and we thought, why not build a platform that can bridge all of this? Um, and this is this was the second shift and this was also the shift from a monolith a single application single code base um, into microservices which is a com was a completely different set of challenges that we were facing challenges that we never uh, things that we've took for granted like networks and connections and discovery services knowing about each other and uh, communicating between uh, applications this was taken for granted in a monolith because you don't really have these problems mm -hmm. but once we've shifted to microservices a huge new set of challenges just popped up and we never thought we would have these but uh, and and we had a lot of uh, trouble g getting around with these tools because we were not <laughs> experienced in that area mm -hmm. Um, so we had to learn a lot before we could do it as we do it today. I wouldn't say it's the right way. Sure, <laughs> it's sure, just sure. We're doing it and it's working. Yeah, right? I hear uh, that. Hmm. We're getting close to time and I want to make sure that I've asked all the questions I had. Oh, tell me a little bit about Lebanon and, and tell me a little bit about Leb Lebanon as a developer and tell me a little bit about Lebanon as a Laravel developer. All right. So Lebanon in general is this small country that you can barely see on the map let alone Beirut, if you right. were able to spot that on, on the map. Uh, so it's a very small country, but um, it's faced a lot of um, political uh, stuff happening, going around, wars and internal civil wars, and then 
people not liking each other politically, etc. So uh, this is all going going on. Uh, even though all of this is happening, the tech community managed to, uh, well, the start of an entrepreneurship communities managed to rise mm. from all of this that was happening. Um, there are certain areas uh, in Beirut where uh, they are dedicated to provide as much as they can uh, have the amenities to run a, a any idea you have like they, that you can rent uh, just like any accelerator or mm -hmm. an incubator program there's plenty of these uh, here today where you can rent a small desk and do whatever you have to do from there uh, internet connection was a huge problem. Mm -hmm. It's becoming much better okay. nowadays. I mean, if this was to happen a few years, a couple of years ago, we maybe couldn't have done this <laughs> at mm. all yeah. due to the to the internet connection. But uh, nowadays, it's become uh, much much different. Um, as a developer, there's plenty of talent in here. Mm. We enjoy uh, sharing the knowledge, sharing everything we can get from abroad and from here from each other the only problem is that there isn't much people in here yeah so yeah. <laughs> uh, everyone uh, which is uh, i mean it's a double-edged sword right right everyone knows everybody but it's <laughs> the same people that you always see in all the, right. the events you don't really get to you know these um, networking time that yeah. you get in conferences you know everybody we don't already. really get to network <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah we know each other that's funny <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Um, so um, we try to go abroad for these uh, more than doing it local. Got it. But at the same time, um, when we, f we were first starting, there was no community, right? We did not feel that there's this connection, this circle of people that are trying to um, build something together, mm -hmm. build a hub of knowledge, hub of experience that they can share among each other. Mm -hmm. um, but now what we're trying to do is tighten the uh, and strengthen the connections between these people so that we can build a more full circle Got that it. can uh, incubate everyone in the community as much as possible and show whoever is starting to get into the um, the technology or development that um, there is a place for them here we don't really need to go and work abroad we can do it from here like we, we're trying our best to do that um, as a Laravel developer, um, there's well, there's plenty of people who are using Laravel nowadays. Okay. Um, we gather, uh, we talk a lot about what we do differently in Laravel, and we talk a lot about how eloquent it is. Exactly. Uh, and, and the way uh, we can write code and we exchange a lot um, we try to provide a lot of open source to each other uh, open source libraries and tell each other well I've written this small script why don't you use it in oh, your company cool. because we know each other we know what we're working on right so if we find uh, a common interest uh, one of them one of us would uh, contribute that and, and provide it to the rest so it's, it's a very small community I'd say um, but it's very interesting because uh, it's still sustaining hmm. for almost six years now it is sustaining and is growing um, that's really cool so I, I find it yeah I find it really cool here to have uh, I mean for anyone who knows Lebanon and knows how um, how many people there is here to find this that's that's amazing that's all you need you don't really need to to, to have any any much more than this the only issue in here is scale mm -hmm. We cannot apply what we work on at scale. Got it. And we cannot scale what we work on unless it's provided internationally. And to go international from here, uh, it is really, really tough. Unless it's a branch of a, an, an international company that is working here but provides the business from abroad, it is really not much room for you to scale yeah. compared to other places. Mm. That's the only drawback. 
I did not realize how small it is because um, <laughs> Beirut has similar population to the what to the very small feeling town that I live in. And <laughs> I used to live in Chicago, which has I think it's two and a half million people, and Lebanon entirely has six million people. So I now understand yeah, exactly. what you're talking about scale wise. <laughs> exactly. Do you, do you is there much of a like? I mean, I guess like how far of a drive is if I assume Beirut is kind of like the the technical center. I are people coming into today, Beirut yeah. for a lot of meetups and stuff like that? Is he, is that even that far of a drive? It's not far. Um, I mean, it's relatively yeah. far because of the traffic. It oh, okay. is oof, way too far, man. <laughs> but <laughs> but if, if you were to just measure the numbers, you would say, well, that's that's to you that that's not even a drive. Right, right, right. <laughs> right? Okay. It's just a, a walk. So what's <laughs> what's the furthest somebody longer. comes into Beirut for a meetup or a conference? Who who lives in? London? No, no, they do. Yeah, they do. They do. What's the furthest out? Dri- furthest uh, drive? Is it an hour? Is it thirty minutes? Is it five hours? Like, what's it look like? Uh, five hours? No, uh, five hours. You would you would be in a different country. <laughs> there yeah. is no. That's what I thought. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it a couple hours. Like a max. couple of hours drive. Okay. Well, what's interesting is that we have this as a. a um, uh, a, an institution, a small institution called SE Factory, SE standing for uh, Software Engineering Factory, which uh, where they teach Laravel to uh, graduating students. Really, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, it is. And the thing, the more interesting thing about this is that people come to Beirut to study this on a daily basis, from nine in the morning to seven in, at night, f- uh, and and going over two hours drive. From their country wow. towns, uh, it's it's yeah, it's a long drive, and you have no idea how draining to energy it is to go through all this traffic on a daily basis to be able to learn this. I I that's the first group I've ever heard of that is teaching Laravel as a part of a code school. What's I'll, I'll ask you for the link later, and I'll put it in the show notes for everybody. SE right. Factory. That's sure. really fascinating. Okay, it is. Um. I have one last question for you, and that is, what is the best book that you have ever read? doesn't have to be about programming, that's just a book across the board. Oh, yeah. That's a very interesting question because uh, my favorite book is the one that was given to me by the Laravel community when I went to speak at Laracon. We had a dinner a day they, before that. Huh. And and they gave us all books, and it was uh, Godel Asher, Asher Bach, which were, which is the book that bridges um, so many topics. Right, it's between art uh, and science, okay, mainly and music, of course. Um, this is a book that really manifests how I like to think about technology nowadays. It's again, it's it's not about just coding it's more than that it's about understanding um, well there's a lot of creativity in there Mm -hmm. to be put there's a lot of potential and opportunity for someone to expand and to put their all into this and make something out of it it's endless and the way um, that these um, areas were merged together in this book is fascinating Hmm. you just get to see that philosophy music and science they're all in the same place hmm. and how they bridge and uh, share the same fundamentals in terms of creativity it was very very interesting uh i'm reading through the preview on amazon right now and um all right. it's it's definitely triggering some i studied um english literature in school and it's definitely there's a lot of philosophy in there, but I was a you know as a technologist while I was there, and it's definitely just reading through the some of the basic intro stuff here. I'm going okay, this is uh, <laughs> both scary and exciting in in seeing those things. But this exactly. is super super intellectual though. It is, it or at is. least it looks like it is. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you I would feel okay. after you've read this book, you would feel like wow, and that's that's a lot that's happening and I'm in a field that's much bigger than I thought it was it's not the huh. the if and else statements that I've written it's much more than that <laughs> that's what, that's what oh, makes it more interesting this is fascinating okay well I'll put a link to the um, to the uh, the book in the show notes it's go to Escherbach uh, a go- the golden braid or a golden braid or something like that yes an, internal yes. an golden eternal braid. golden braid yep yeah I will link that in the show notes well thank you I 
you know, I I'm really happy. I'm very very pleasantly surprised that it was so not a programming I. book, and that was really good. <laughs> uh, well, we're past time, so I have to cut, which I hate doing, but I have to do. So if uh, if people want to follow you, or if there's any other last thing you want to shout out or something like that, what should what? How do you want people to kind of? What's their one takeaway? Should they follow you on Twitter? Should they go try out some product? What do you want them to do? Sure. So on Twitter, that's one. On GitHub, that's two, and it's the same identity all over the place. It's Mulcave, M-U-L-K-A-V-E. That's the username that I use everywhere. So if you look up Mulcave on Google, you'll get all my contact f- mediums and everywhere. There's there's also the uh, uh, tech uh, blog of Vila where you can find the introduction to also Lucid and stuff we do at work here. Uh, which is which could be interesting also to look at. Okay, and I'll link all those in the show notes. I do have to ask, what is Mul- what's Mulcave? Oh well, <laughs> I told you I was into gaming when I was young, and there was this game <laughs> uh, about vampires. <laughs> okay, and there was this uh, kind of clan of vampires that are um, intellectual. They're called the Malcavians. M A L-K-A-V-I-A-N. So um, I found the introduction of these, uh, of this clan and the people in this clan to be very much uh, matching my personality and character. So Uh I thought, well, (laughs) I'll just choose that. And one day (laughs) I had to choose a username. So I was like, yeah, Malkay, Malkay, yeah, whatever. (laughs) I see that the best usernames are ones where you know that forever you're going to be able to get it on any social network (laughs) no matter what. So I like it. (laughs) <laughs> exactly awesome uh well i really appreciate you taking your time to talk to me um you know thank I, you very much people who don't know we had never met before and i asked around and i said hey i want to meet people in different communities and you know so abed was recommended to me and we had a chat a couple weeks ago and i said yeah this is definitely one of someone i want to talk to and I, it was a total pleasure so i really appreciate it and thanks for your time man thank you very much for having me on this podcast and i really appreciate your time as well thank you